I'm Sahar Zand, and this is a Vespucci story. There is a place where memory is kept, not by photographs, but by certain members of the tribe. Their duty is to memorize entire books and recite them from beginning to end, in case they are ever lost. The tribe is nomadic, moving from place to place. If you travel with them, you will walk for miles through the desert each day. An hour before sunset, you will arrive at the place where you're going to camp. Your guides will make camp, feed their camels, and serve food beside a fire. If you're not tired, you can join them as they talk. The desert is pitch black for miles around. All you have to light your conversation is the flame and the sky full of stars. When the group goes quiet, it is deadly silent. Not a sound. Unless, of course, Sidi is talking to you, telling you about his quest to find his father. A journey that took him so many miles and a world away from home. The first things Sidi can remember are sand dunes, towering like buildings, though of course, at this point, he has never seen a building. His childhood was a mirage of camels, tents, sandstorm scorpions and tumbleweed, playing with dolls made of camel dung and drawing with sticks in the sand. Sidi was born on the far edge of the Sahara in 1987, raised in a nomadic Berber tribe in Mauritania, a country roughly three times the size of Montana, sitting on the northwest corner of Africa. Almost all of Mauritania is desert, a vast savanna. His mother's people had survived there in the same way for thousands of years. The community was small, a handful of families, all camel herders. A world outside this was barely even imaginable. Sidi's mother was an incredible, intense woman, the tribe's healer, and Sidi loved her fiercely. His mother had a vast knowledge of the world, things not revealed to most people. The healing properties of desert plants and animals, which prayers to whisper to her patients, she was even believed to be in touch with the jinns. She would explain to Sidi the power of the mind and the way the body is designed to naturally heal itself. The two of them lived together in their tent, walls made of fabric, a carpet hand-woven from camel fur, a few pieces of wood to hold the roof up. There was no electricity or running water and no decoration, only a small wooden box to hold clothes, a few handmade knives and wooden cups, and on top, a copy of the Quran. Death was kept away from the children of Sidi's community. That knowledge comes later. And so when Sidi asked why he didn't have a father, when all the other children did, his mother told him a story. Sidi did have a father, but when he was still a baby, his father had gone on a trip to a land far away. Why? asked Sidi. Doesn't he love me? In Sidi's tribe, not having a father is a taboo, and Sidi suffered for it. The other children bullied him. He was a bastard, a bearer of shame. If he only had a father, he thought, the taunts would stop. He could not stop thinking about this mysterious man who was so far away he couldn't visit. He spent hours imagining what it would be like to meet him, what he would look like and what he would say. Of course your father loves you, 
his mother reassured him. Eventually, Sidi grew to understand that this trip was one we all must take and from which we do not return. His mother explained that when Sidi's father had grown to the age of 60, he had become ill. And after that, he had had to go away to heaven. Can I visit? asked Sidi. You will go one day, his mother replied. But not yet, when you've had many children and grown old yourself, when you have lived your full life. But little Sidi's longing only grew. His imagined father became his best and only friend. Sidi spoke to him, drew him, begged his mother for more bedtime stories of him. The more he pretended he had a father, the more the other children bullied him. The more he got into fights and became withdrawn. Finally, his mother sat him down and told him the truth. There was a way Sidi could see his father. Many years ago, when your father was still a young man, some people from a land far away came to visit. They looked similar to us, but their skin was white and their eyes the color of the skies. They had a black box with them, which could capture whatever image was before it. Sidi could hardly breathe with excitement. A French film crew had visited some years before and filmed Sidi's father, showing them his way of life. If you truly wish to see your father, see him talking and moving and drinking tea, you need to find those people. Sidi had seen a box that captured images once before, but those had only been still, spat out into pieces of paper. The thought of an image that could move, an image of his father, was better than he had ever imagined. Like trapping memory, he thought. It was clear he had to find those people and their image of his father. The world outside the desert could only be so big, he thought. It could not be too difficult. Sidi's mother knew that the first step was to get an education. Sidi would have to learn languages apart from Hassaniya, the local Arabic dialect he spoke. For the first time, he would need to communicate with people from outside his tribe. The closest school was nearly three hours walk away in a cluster of unfamiliar stone structures. Sidi woke at sunrise every morning to make the long, hot journey across giant sand dunes and left early every day to make it back before the sun went down and the scorpions crept out of their hiding places. For the next few years, Sidi concentrated furiously on learning enough to find his father's image. He already knew a lot of things from his mother, but to these he added French, classical Arabic, maths, science, Islamic studies, and his favorite, geography. The world was so much bigger than he had imagined. And yet, that was also the problem. The more he learned, the more dejected he became. He never missed a day. He was top of his class, but all this knowledge only seemed to show him how impossible his task was, how much more he needed to accomplish his mission of finding the moving picture that held his father. By the time Sidi was 13, he felt hopeless. The world was not what he had believed it was, a small community in the desert where everyone knew each other. His mother had believed that just like everyone knew each other in the desert, so he would be with the French people. But he knew now that this wasn't true. School had taught him everything it could. He stopped going. Time in the classroom was time away from his quest. 
he would never find his answers there. Only foreigners had the next piece of the puzzle. And he was stuck in the desert. Everything changed the day his older cousin, Dahnema, roared into the camp on an animal they had never seen before. When Dahnema explained that the jeep wouldn't hurt them, the kids tried to feed it like a camel. The jeep was part of Dahnema's work. He had become a tour guide, showing the desert to foreigners visiting Mauritania. Suddenly, Sidi saw that everything was possible again. If only he could convince Dahnema to let him on board. There wasn't much money in the business or even room on board, but Sidi begged. I'll do everything you need me to. You don't even need to pay me. Just let me work as your apprentice. Convincing Sidi's mother was different. No matter what Dahnema agreed to, Sidi knew he could never live without his mother's blessing. And she wanted him to stay at home and in school. I will never stop learning, he promised. But school is not where I'll do it. Besides, I can earn more money from tourists than any job I could get after years of studying. I'll become an educated man. Please. She said yes. So did Dahnema. Sidi was ready to go. They called him Sidi Fridi on Dahnema's expeditions because he did so much for no pay. Every job that came his way, he did. Fetching water, setting up camp, cleaning, washing, killing scorpions and snakes, digging toilets, killing livestock for meals and cooking the meat underground in the sand. Anything he could do for the foreign guests who came to see the desert. And in return, he asked each and every one of them about the film. Nothing. No leads. Still, he knew now the world was a big place. It might take a long time to find someone who knew what he was talking about. He started taking longer and longer trips away from home. He saw his mother less and less. He became a qualified guide in his own right and learned to drive the jeep himself, taking people across the desert and showing the world he came from. And even though he still couldn't find any evidence of the film, a strange thing started to happen. Sidi started to realize that everywhere he went, his father had been there before him. Sidi knew from his mother that his father had not lived a nomadic life like she had. He had lived in towns and even run a school. He had been a poet, looking after the treasured books of Shingeti, the town where Sidi went to school. But in his youth, he had traveled around the country, and on his way, he had helped people, and they had remembered him. Over and over again, people stopped in their tracks when Sidi said his father's name, Shingali. All of a sudden, whatever situation he was in, suddenly Sidi had all the help he needed. They couldn't do enough. Shingali's memory was inscribed across Mauritania. Sidi's father was lending a helping hand as if he had somehow known his son would need him long after he had gone. It was wonderful and bitter all at once. So many people who had met his father when Sidi knew he never would. Then in 2008, work dried up for Sidi. Mauritania was facing a difficult time. There had been a coup and the new president, who had promised to release prisoners, who had been denied fair trials, made good on his promise. Many prisoners were innocent. Some had only been arrested for petty crimes. One, however, 
was a murderer whose case had slipped through the cracks. Shortly after his release, he killed a group of French tourists. The incident made international headlines and overnight tourism in Mauritania evaporated. There were no more foreigners for Sidi to guide across the desert, no more tourists seeking out the nomads under the stars. There was only one way forward. There were still foreigners in the capital city, Nouakchott, who visited for business and whose Sidi could show around during their time off. One of them might have a clue to the film footage. The answer was still out there. Nouakchott was far away from where Sidi had grown up, miles and miles across the desert, all the way to the Atlantic. Even after all he had done, it was further than he had ever been. He said goodbye to his mother. He was leaving home for good this time. Living in the capital was a new experience for Sidi. Across most of Mauritania, there was a tradition of feeding and hosting newcomers. But in the capital, things were different. It was more expensive, and when people didn't know you, you were a stranger, not a guest. His money ran out quickly. He was down to his last few oqiyya when he ran into some childhood friends who had come to the city to study. They invited him to join them at their house for the day. The taxi to get there and the bananas they asked him to bring would be the last of his money, but he didn't want to admit that. He said he'd meet them at the house. He went to the nearby store and handed the shopkeeper his last note, eating a banana while he waited for the change. When the old man couldn't find any, Sidi said he would go elsewhere to break the note. But the man accused Sidi of trying to steal from him. He knew Sidi's type, dishonest city boys who thought they could trick him into free food with their games. Sidi told him he wasn't like that. He wasn't even a city boy. He told him where he grew up. The old man said he knew all the families in that area and demanded to know his family name. Sidi said the magic word. Shingali. The moment he said it, the old man broke down in tears. As long as Sidi was in the capital, he could have anything he wanted. The last time he had heard that name, it was at Sidi's father's funeral. You knew my father? Sidi asked. I wish I had, said the old man. He had travelled all that way to meet him and thank him, but when he asked where to find Shingali, they told him he had just died. He had arrived on the day of Shingali's funeral. I owe him my life, said the shopkeeper. He told Sidi the story. Back in the 60s, the shopkeeper, whose name was Brahim, sold some camels he inherited and travelled to Senegal to start his first business. The world was at his feet. Senegal was a French colony, so Brahim hired a French speaker to negotiate the contract and bought his first store. But the French speaker had tricked him. He had put the store in his own name. The man claimed in court that Brahim was just a thieving nomad he had hired. He had the signed paperwork to prove it. When Brahim kept returning to the store, he was thrown in jail with no hope of getting out unless he could pay 40000 The story of the stupid nomad spread around town and eventually Sidi's father, who was studying at the university, heard the story. The injustice of it angered him and he believed that if he could help this man, he would be rewarded in heaven. He borrowed the money from his brother, promising he would pay it back and paid Brahim's bail leaving the jail before Brahim could thank him. All Brahim ever knew was his name, Shingali, 
and he thought of him every day of his life until the day, decades later, when he set out to find him. Brahim told Sidi that he now had a friend in the city. Sidi's father must have sent him there. Anything he needed, Brahim would provide. Nothing good you do in life is lost, he said. Nothing. After that, Sidi flourished. By 22 years old, he was the owner of one of the most sought-after tour companies in Mauritania. He owned several of his own jeeps and employed dozens of people. From just his mother tongue, he had become fluent in Arabic, English, Spanish, French, German, and knew bits and pieces of half a dozen others. He had kept his promise to his mother. He had become an educated man. But still, he had not done what he set out to do. He had met his father a dozen times through people on the way. But still, he had not seen him with his own eyes. Every single foreigner he met, he made sure to tell them about his search for the film. Hundreds of people around the world, all promising to keep an eye out for the elusive footage. And still nothing. But he kept hoping. When Sidi took an archaeologist group from Belgium on a three-week tour of the desert, just like every time, he repeated the story about his search for his father. Just like every time, the desert was pitch black for miles around. Only the flame of the campfire and the sky full of stars. The tourists sipped sweet, strong mint tea and listened, captivated. One of the listeners was a young woman called Chloe. Chloe had already noticed certain things about Sidi. How passionate and charismatic he was. How tall and broad-shouldered. By the time she found herself clinging to every word coming out of his mouth as he told his story, she realized she had fallen harder than expected. That same night, they stayed up late talking. They talked until the sun came up on the new day. By the end of the trip, she was in love. Three weeks later, Chloe was on her way to Mali with the rest of the group as planned. Still, she couldn't stop thinking about Sidi and the story he had told. Even as she travelled through Mali, her thoughts were with the man she had left in the desert and his quest. What if she could do it? What if she could help? She convinced her archaeology group that they had to help him. She persuaded them to pull some money together to hire an archivist in France to look for the film of Sidi's father. It had to be out there. Over the years, Sidi had gotten more information, drawing pieces of the puzzle towards him, trying desperately to follow each clue as far as it would take him. Sooner or later, each lead ran out. Even people who promised to help forgot as soon as they left Mauritania or had simply never been that interested in the first place. He had found a few hints that the film was in fact a documentary, a rough idea of the year it was filmed and that the title translated to The Desert Library. He held all these scraps of information tightly to himself and wove them into his retelling of the story, hoping beyond hope that someone would hear the story or pass it on and someone would recognise something, a chain of helpers across the world. Chloe told the archivist everything she knew, hoping against hope. And then, finally, they struck gold. A couple of weeks after they left Mauritania, she got a call. They had found something. 
It was three in the afternoon, and Sidi had just returned to the capital from a long tour in the desert. He was driving to his apartment when he got a call from Chloe. Get to the airport now, she said. We've booked you a flight to Mali at five. We have a surprise for you, she added. Sidi turned the car around before she'd even finished the sentence. He knew. He was alive with nerves. The end of his quest was approaching. He hit the gas all the way to the airport and made the flight with seconds to spare. He boarded with nothing but his ID card, his clothes still covered in desert sand. It was the first time he had ever left Mauritania, let alone got on a plane. At the airport, he ran the wrong way up the escalator and fell over, having never seen one before. But he barely noticed any of this. He was following the sound of his father, calling him out of the country, bringing the desert in the seams of his clothes. The archaeologist group had rented a hotel conference room. There, in the middle of the room, was a projector. Chloe greeted him, overjoyed to see him again. But he could hardly speak. The lump in his throat was too painful. The voice that comes through the air when they throw the switch and start the film is immediately, startlingly familiar to Sidi. Footage of the ancient buildings of Shingeti and over it, a man's voice reciting classical Arabic poetry. It is the voice that has been in his mind since he was a boy, pretending he had a father. The next shot is four old men sitting down in the library, drinking tea. Sidi knows his father right away. He looks at his face, the straight dark eyebrows, the slant of his cheeks, his smiling mouth, the same as Sidi's. He's talking to the documentarian, explaining how they memorize ancient books, some a thousand years old, and when the books are damaged, they write out the pages from memory and restore them to wholeness. Watching this, Sidi wondered, not for the first time, if he could ever live up to the man his father was. But he had come so far and learned so much. Little Sidi, who thought the desert was the whole world, had wanted a father so badly. Now, at last, Sidi had found him. Sidi is now 34 years old and owns the biggest tour company in Mauritania. Chloe eventually moved to Mauritania to be with him. I met Sidi when I traveled to Mauritania two years ago to shoot a documentary. After spending a few weeks working together, I became friends with this extraordinary man. He came to tell me about his dad when I asked him about the photo of the man on his iPhone screensaver. Sidi's story is not just about dreams coming true, but it is about who we become on the journey in pursuit of our dreams. He carries the photo of his father everywhere he goes.